0: Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are exploring the changing rules of business leadership and how CEOs are navigating this change. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray.
1: And I'm Michal Evram. Alan, ever since the pandemic, I feel like there are a handful of topics that CEOs and business journalists keep returning to again and again and again. And in fact, it was the topic of our most recent episode with Howard Lerman of Rome, uh, tech innovation spurred by lockdowns and work from home, the return to work debate, the importance of employee mental
0: health. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons we keep talking about that last one about employee mental health is that companies aren't quite sure if they're doing a good job. We know that there are a lot of problems out there. It's really exploded as a workplace issue. Everyone now seems to agree it's important but they don't quite know the best way to support their workers.
1: Well, our guest today wants to help with that. He's Russ Glass, the CEO of Headspace Health, which is a brand that probably a lot of people are familiar with. Um, It's a meditation app, or that's really what it was known as for for years. Um, What people may not know and realize is that a couple of years ago, Headspace merged with a company called Ginger, which ran an enterprise business. Um, It offers employees coaching, therapy, and psychiatry, services. And the combined company is now called Headspace Health. Um, The goal here was really to bring all of these resources, both on the consumer side and the enterprise side, under one platform.
0: Yeah. And a very smart move to start serving enterprises because there's a lot of demand for it. The company now says it serves 4,000 companies across 200 countries and has several million people actively using the app each month.
1: Yeah, Alan, um, I'll tell you one thing I learned in the interview that really surprised me here. Um, According to a Headspace Health survey, 49% of employees say that they feel a sense of dread at work at least once a week, and that number rises to 59% for CEOs. Um, I hope you're not feeling any dread right now, Alan, but what do you think about that?
0: Uh, Never any dread about joining you for a Leadership Next podcast. Good. But but unfortunately, uh, I, I did dread the fact I wasn't able to join you for this one because this is one of my favorite topics.
1: Yeah, we missed you. Um, I know this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart. Um, and and by the way, we also had a long conversation, Russ and I, about raising daughters.
2: Oh. <laughs> something we're all living
1: through and have lived through and we can relate to, the three of us. Um, Russ is actually one of few leaders we've spoken to on this podcast who stepped back from his career to raise his kids. Uh, before joining Headspace, he was a full-time wow. dad for 18 months and... He talked about it and just what an amazing, amazing opportunity it was for him.
0: Wow. But but let's not talk about him. Let's talk with him. Let's get right to today's interview. Here's Mahal's conversation with Headspace Health CEO, Russ Glass.
1: Okay. So, Russ, before we dive into the actual business here, um, I want to talk to you about just a little bit of, of context here about you. Um, so prior to joining um, Ginger as CEO, you'd started a series of companies. This is not your first uh, gig here. Um, a lot of tech focused companies, obviously. Um, this seems like a little bit of a jump coming into an established company in the mental health space. Um, how did this come about?
2: Yeah, it is it is a jump. Uh, it's actually it's my first healthcare company. All of my prior entrepreneurial endeavors and startups and whatnot were in different forms of tech, whether media or data or enterprise software. And when I left LinkedIn, I actually, I didn't have any current ideas or, or desire and and I just wanted to be dad. So I've got three daughters and I hadn't, you know, I spent the last nine years Uh, focused on the company and and I really wanted to spend time with them. So I left and after about 18 months, I decided that, okay, I wasn't ready to be retired forever and I wanted to go back and do something. But if I was going to leave them every day, it, it needed to be for something that was impactful, something that the world really needed. And I came across Ginger. I recognized just how important the mental health crisis was and and the supply demand imbalance that existed. And I felt like I could, you know, spend the rest of my career focused on it.
1: Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to back up for a second. We've interviewed a lot of leaders on this podcast, male and female. I don't think we've ever had somebody uh, talk to us about, you know, stepping aside to raise their daughter. So I'm curious to hear just a little bit more about that. I mean, what was, was that a hard decision to make? What reactions did you get? when you told people?
2: You know, I mean, look, I, I, my first daughter was born about three months after I started this company Bizzo that I eventually sold LinkedIn. My third daughter was born about a week before I sold the company. And so that entire six years of, of, you know, building a company was at the same time that I was, you know, raising these these little, little humans, you know, and, and then I went to LinkedIn and that was an intense three years. So that was nine years of, of me not putting them first. And, uh, I, I, I sort of recognized that, you know, you can never, you can never get this time back. And I, I felt like I was, you know, really privileged enough to have the, the resources to take time away. And my wife also has a very um, uh, successful career. And so I took a step back and and I will, you know, it it, it it literally to this day, I have relationships with them that that I wouldn't have had otherwise, you know? And, and so it was one of the, I think, best decisions I've made in my career.
1: Well, uh, one thing we definitely, uh, the three of us have in common, myself, you, Russ and Alan, is we all have gotten to raise girls and still get to do it. So I commend you for that. Um, <laughs> We're lucky. We're all lucky. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Russ, I, I want to go back to Ginger and Headspace. And I think, you know, maybe not everybody's familiar with the the merger that happened. And so give us a little bit of uh, a sense of just what was Ginger, what was Headspace, and what are they combined?
2: Ginger was really a what I would call a category creator in uh, digital mental health. So Ginger recognized this huge supply-demand imbalance that exists in the world between, you know, World Health Organization estimates about a billion people that have a diagnosed mental health condition and 60% of them are not getting support. And And a huge part of that is because there aren't enough providers out there. There aren't solutions out there to scale access. So Ginger was focused on that problem. On the other side, Headspace again, kind of a category creator, yeah, it was it was founded by a literally a Buddhist monk, Andy Puddicombe, who went to uh, study meditation and mindfulness in Tibet and recognized the immense power of mindfulness to solve some of the mental health needs in, in you know modern humanity. And you know, the a lot of the world has recognized this for thousands of years and has never lost it in in Eastern cultures. But in most of Western society, we've sort of lost the the understanding of the power of of mindfulness and meditation. And so Headspace brought that to the world and created uh, a scalable way to teach people how to build mindfulness and, and how to use that to solve some of these mental health needs we have Bringing both companies together, the concept is to create the most comprehensive, most scalable approach to solve this mental health need of, of the world. And you know, the combination of these incredible um, experiences and 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 the user interfaces that that Headspace is built to teach and and help people stay on this meditation path, and then Ginger, the the on-demand mental health system. When you bring both of those things together, you end up with something quite powerful, which is being able to understand where people are in their mental health journey, guide them to the right solutions for the needs, and be their lifelong guide to uh, mental health support.
1: So can you talk a little bit more about just what the breakdown is you know, revenue-wise at, at this point? I mean, what's coming from the consumer space, um, headspace? Um and, and what proportion is coming from the enterprise business side at this point?
2: At at this point, the revenues is coming from the most part from the enterprise side of the business. We've seen pretty significant growth. I think somewhat driven by the pandemic and and in the recognition of just how important this is, kind of accelerated awareness of focus on mental health. And now we see that, you know, enterprises a top three focus area, pretty consistently, is is mental health and making sure that employees have access. Employees are, uh, you know, given the tools they need to be successful. And increasingly, we're seeing health plans also understand that investment in mental health is an important part of whole person health, of of making sure that you uh, maintain a healthy population and reduce healthcare costs downstream. And so that's been a real growth driver of the organization really since the merger. Are,
1: are you concerned at all that um, some of that pandemic era growth um, is, is slowing down or that um, this isn't going to be sticky enough? Like if a recession does hit, if you know, there are more layoffs like we've seen, um, are these programs that anybody's cutting or are they sticking?
2: You know, it's funny. We weren't sure, you know, coming out of the pandemic what we would see. We weren't sure at a recessionary period if we'd see pullback. And I would say for the most part, at this point, we're pretty convinced that we're not seeing a post-pandemic pullback as as a starting point. The the I think the pandemic certainly accelerated the awareness and the need, but Post pandemic, we haven't seen any sort of retrenchment in need. It, it, the, the elevated mental health concerns have remained. We see, you know, stats like 90% of employees are feeling either somewhat or very stressed on a weekly basis. You know, we're seeing 49% of employees feeling dread at work on a weekly basis. So these are you know the kind of stats that companies are having to deal with right now, and 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 so they've maintained a focus on it.
1: I want to interrupt you there on just on the the dread piece. Like, did you get any clarity in that study on what that means? Dread is not associated with anything good for sure, but what does that really mean that people are feeling dread at work?
2: Yeah, this came from our um, workforce attitudes report. We we've done this now for five years running. This is our 2023 study. And and as we dug into it, it was sort of three main areas. One was economic instability. So worrying about having a job and maintaining that job. Two was productivity pressures. So you know, how someone is showing up at work, feeling like they have to get a a number of things done. And if they don't, are they going to lose their job, right? So, So that's how that is sort of coming together. And then and then three is just expect rising expectations. The 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 level of of quality, the the opportunity for others to kind of come in and take those roles. I think there's also a remote factor in all of this as well. I think there is a loneliness factor. I think there is a not really getting to know your colleagues as well when you're not working as closely with them. So there's a lot of things tied up in this, and and I think we're in the very early days of understanding it. Um, but but the net is people are people are still suffering, and companies are are recognizing that and they've maintained a focus on mental health as an area they have to invest in. I would say the only area we're seeing some recessionary shift is is in sort of small to medium business. We're seeing that some of those investment decisions are taking longer. We're seeing that they're, they're more focused on return on investment, so they're, they're, the decisions are going into the CFO's office more than they were before. So we're seeing a little bit of a shift there, but, but for the most part, we've seen a, a continuation of the pandemic trends of this being critical to the enterprise.
0: Jason Garzadas, the CEO of Deloitte US is the sponsor of this podcast and joins me today. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Alan. It's great to be here. Jason, we live in an era of disruption, technology disruption, geopolitical disruption, workplace disruption, and it makes accurate predictions about what's going to happen in the future more difficult than it has ever been. Yet the polls that we do together with you show that most business leaders largely
3: remain optimistic. Why do you think that is? Well, I think optimism is a result of the fact that we've been through an incredibly tumultuous three years. And so I think business leaders realize that they've built resilience into their organizations. The prospect of even more disruption isn't as foreign of a concept, and I think there's more confidence in their ability to adapt and to be agile. Secondarily, there's been tremendous investment in technology and new capabilities that client organizations and executives broadly are optimistic about those creating more value and more opportunity. So it's a function of what we've been through, as well as the investments that have been made, that give a sense of optimism despite some of the headwinds.
0: And what's your advice to companies that are struggling with the potential disruption in the future?
3: Well, disruption is the new normal. I don't think there's any placid water on the horizon or calmness that we can predict. So it's a function of getting accustomed to the discontinuities that are ahead of us, whether it's around technology or geopolitical change or workplace changes associated with the future of work or the demands of the talent workforce. Change is the new normal. As a result, it is requiring executive teams to actually look holistically at those challenges be facile with doing scenario planning and being on the lookout for where and how to capitalize on disruption versus being concerned by it or seen as a barrier to their success. Jason,
0: thanks for your perspective and thanks for sponsoring Leadership Next.
3: Thank you.
1: What what do you feel like companies are getting right? And what are they getting wrong about mental health? I mean, there's definitely, you know, we've, we've covered um, so many different initiatives and uh, awareness and services um, and coverage um, for increasing coverage for mental health, but the companies that are getting it right, what are they doing?
2: It's a great question. I'd say there are two things that the companies who are doing it really well are doing that not all companies are doing. One is they're focusing on culture change, and and they're focusing on normalizing mental health conversations. And, And usually that means they have executives at the organization or people in positions of leadership that are openly talking about mental health. That normalization is super important because it allows everybody at the company to feel like they can raise their hand and share that they might need some support, that they might need some help. And that's one. Two, then, is a focus on prevention you know, I think a lot of companies are thinking about how they put resources in place to help improve access. They're finding that their health plans, you know, the, the, the networks are inadequate. So people aren't able to find therapists or, or psychiatrists that they, that take insurance that, that, you know, um, that don't require these huge out of pocket costs, but unless you focus on prevention, uh, you you're, you're, missing a huge percentage of the population that's quietly suffering that, that, you know, are either facing dread on a pretty consistent basis or are seeing elevated, um, stress levels that ultimately will lead to burnout unless those people are getting the tools that they need to reduce stress.
1: And it's interesting because, you know, you, you brought up the remote aspect and that at least in in some cases and for some people it's it's contributing to uh to problems right and 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 loneliness um feeling disconnected and then at the same time you know we're seeing a lot of um pushback on the return to office mandates so what do you i mean as as a ceo yourself also how do you navigate that what advice do you give for leaders in sort of, you know, balancing that um, because it might actually, we've seen data that shows it's good for productivity to get people back, at least in some capacity, it might even be good for their mental health. And yet a lot of employees also care deeply about maintaining some level of flexibility.
2: You know, I think you're, you're naming one of the most interesting and complex challenges of, you know, our, our time as leaders right now, right? The, the, the time that we're all um, finding ourselves in. And the first thing I would say is, there's no one size fits all, you know. Every company, every industry has very different needs in terms of remote versus in person. You know, you on one side of the equation, there are some operations that absolutely require in person, right? Uh, workforces, surgery, really important that somebody's in person, right? Uh, if you're if you're running a manufacturing line, you need to have people in person. I think I think it's important to recognize it's not one size fits all. I think the second thing that's important to recognize is there are very real needs on both sides of this. So, I don't think there's any doubt that there's loneliness that's being created particularly for the younger populations that are at home all the time in a remote context. You know, for thousands of years, literally since like the invention of agriculture, humanity has been making their best friends at work. And we are a social creature. We are a creature that, that needs those interactions. And, and so when that's pulled away from us, there's, of course there's going to be loneliness, right? Of course you're going to have people that are, that are suffering. So that's one. Two, I think it's important to recognize that there's clearly a longitudinal cost to not having in-person interactions at work. You know, we've seen some data both internally and externally that shows that people that are not showing up at offices are less likely to be promoted. Uh, We've seen data that shows, you know, it's very early days on all of this. So there's a lot of studying that still needs to be done, but some data that shows that like those people who are not getting those in-person interactions are not going to progress in their career as fast as those who are. And so... Uh, that's one end of the spectrum that it's clear that there's value to in-person interaction both to the individual as well as to the productivity in certain cases. Right. But on the other side of that, you absolutely have a workforce that loves the flexibility and loves, um, and in some in some cases needs the flexibility from a, if you are a single parent, right. And you, you want to be able to, um, earn while raising a family. So it's important as leaders to recognize both sides of this and work towards developing opportunities and helping people recognize that going to the office is actually going to be valuable for you and the organization.
1: Um, Okay. I want to ask you uh, real quick, just on the, on the landscape, uh, the competitive landscape. And obviously, um, as, uh, demand grew uh, during the pandemic for services like Headspace and and Ginger um, and what you guys offer. Um, so did the number of apps and services that, that offer um, mental health, um, you know, all, all sorts of, whether it's purely digital or not. Um, what, you know, in light of this proliferation, how do you look at what you're offering is. You were early on, obviously, and you established your brand, uh, both of the brands. Um, but how do you make sure that you stay differentiated, that you keep innovating um, as the market has evolved quite a bit?
2: Well, you know, first, I think one of the reasons that we did the merger in the first place was we recognized that there's a huge spectrum of you know, mental health need. and if if you measure and you do a good job of understanding where somebody is, what you recognize is that often the place they need to go, whether it be just self-care, kind of mindfulness, meditation, breathing, you know different better sleep habits, um, or behavioral health coaching, uh, you know, subclinical resources that help people build a plan and and do a better job of of lifestyle change or do a better job of managing their mental health condition, all the way to therapy and, and psychiatry. Even most people have no idea what they need. Most people just know they're not feeling great. And what we recognized was if we can help destigmatize, which is a lot of what the Headspace brand does. It just makes it easy to get started and we can measure and help guide people to the right place, we solve a lot of the mental health need because we get people in earlier, we get them understanding what those needs are, and we cost-effectively bring them to access. So, so we're solving a lot of the need by bringing these things together. And what we saw was a lot of point solutions out there. We saw a lot of Different apps and different experiences that were picking off very small parts of the problem. But at the end of the day, the trick with that, one is that companies are, you know, sort of tired of point solutions. They're tired of all the, the vendors, it's vendor fatigue, right? Of all of the, the different vendors, particularly in the pandemic. They all everybody bought a lot of stuff and realized that actually it wasn't getting used and that there was real fatigue there. But secondly, If someone doesn't know what they need, it's very difficult to sort through the thousands of different apps and experiences and and things that are being built. And we really wanted to take that on. We wanted to help people understand and then provide the lion's share of support that they might need. And that's why we say, you know, we really think Headspace is the most comprehensive mental health platform out there right now. Because we've brought these things together in a, in a way that is is just less friction filled for somebody to access.
1: Okay, and one more question, more on the personal side for you. Um, I know you are not the Buddhist monk at the company; um, that was the founder. But you seem you seem pretty grounded and and uh, you know balanced and and a bit zen. So, like, what advice do you have? Um, for busy leaders who need to carve out that time, and what do you do personally to make sure that you're taking care of yourself?
2: Well, first, I'll, uh, You can't just say headspace. <laughs> no, I know. I won't. I promise. I won't. But but I will say that, you know, I when I sold my last company, it was a, a company that I sold to LinkedIn, and I I had just had my third child, and I got into the new company, and I was. I was struggling. I wasn't sleeping well. I had an infant at home. I was struggling with some imposter syndrome. I went from a you know couple hundred person company to a six thousand person company. I'd never worked at any place that big. And I really didn't know if I was cut out for it. I mean, I started to doubt myself. And Jeff Wiener, the then CEO, brought Andy Pudicum, the CEO of Headspace, in to talk to LinkedIn as an organization. And I downloaded the app during the talk and I started building a meditation practice. And and it's funny, like it didn't do anything for a week. It didn't do anything for two weeks, but I was committed to it because I had heard great things about it. And I saw Andy talk and it made sense and all that good stuff. In the third week I was in a meeting and all of a sudden it clicked this, this, comment that was made that would have triggered my anxiety, would have triggered my stress response. I noted it and I just kind of let it go. And, and, and it, it hit me what mindfulness is all about. It's not about, you know, it's not about changing anything about, you know, the world. Emotions still happen. Anxiety still happens, but it's about your response to it. It's about being able to recognize it, let it go and have a different response to those triggers, have a different response to those anxieties. And that has been a game changer for me, not only from a leadership standpoint, but from a marital standpoint, from a being a father standpoint. So that is important. I would say a few other things though. One is sleep. I I get a minimum of seven hours of sleep a night. If I don't, I feel it. I don't have the patience. I don't have the ability to manage um, the the ups and downs that that happen, you know, at at in an environment like this, you know, without good sleep. I do a really good job of taking breaks. So, I actually one of the things I've done for years is I block Friday afternoons where I don't take any meetings. And and I I use that time to catch up, you know. And and I know throughout the week it helps my mental health because even on a Wednesday if I'm just slammed I know I have that block coming up. So I don't get as stressed in the moment. I have that Friday afternoon. And if I get to the Friday afternoon and I'm feeling pretty good about the weekend and I'm 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 going to be present with my family cuz I don't have a bunch of catch up to do, I might do something for myself on Friday afternoon, right? I might go play golf or I might, you know, go on a hike or or something like that. I and I try to do that throughout the week. Have very mindful schedules so that I can stretch, I can I do one on ones, half my one on ones I do outside I walk so these things that allow me to incorporate you know both physical and mental health throughout uh, the week to allow me to you know you know stay sustainable and and um, not not burn myself out in, in what is as I'm sure you've heard a very complicated time to be a leader
1: and headspace right
2: and headspace that's right, that's right.
1: <laughs> Um, well, I, I love ending on just some kind of tactical takeaways. So thank you so much, Russ, for joining us and sharing a bit about Headspace and leadership uh, in this really still quite crazy time. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Michal. Appreciate uh, you taking the time.
0: Leadership Next is edited and produced by Alexis Hot. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Our executive producer is Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a product of Fortune Media.